Hello, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I really hope you enjoy this interview. So recently, I had the enormous privilege of speaking with Catherine Zavodny, who is one of our fellow registered dietitians from Utah in the US. Catherine and I met recently in the US at some events that we attended together, and you'll hear us talking a little bit about that. Catherine has such a unique warmth about her that instantly really draws you in and she and I have had the most wonderful conversations along the way and this is one of them and it certainly will not be the last. So a little bit about Catherine. She is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. She specializes in eating disorder treatment, intuitive eating, chronic dieting and weight concerns and uniquely really to this podcast for the first time since Deb Blakely in episode two, you'll hear us talking about family and childhood feeding dynamics. So Catherine's counselling approach is very much based on non-diet principles and is consistent with the intuitive eating and health at every size model. So Catherine's very confident and very experienced in therapeutic approaches, which respect the body's innate mechanisms for sustaining life and maintaining balance. She speaks about body image so beautifully and the way in which we're able to fuel and nourish our bodies and really maintain that sense of equanimity and balance within ourselves and fostering that within our families. She has a very special place in her heart for family feeding and in particular supporting parents to raise kids who feel confident in their eating habits and their eating behaviours and certainly in their relationship with their bodies. So Catherine has experience of being a parent. She has two kids of her, of her own and She's really been diving down into childhood nutrition, um, but not only just so much the quality of nutrition, but also how we are teaching dietary, dietary or nutrition education, particularly in schools. So Catherine has teamed up with another one of our colleagues called Anna Lutz, who is from North Carolina, also in the US, and you will probably have heard Catherine or Anna on some other, other podcasts as well. So I really encourage you to search for them on other on other podcasts because they're both brilliant speakers and when I had an opportunity to meet them both last year in 2017 at a conference they were speaking about how we can understand kids cognitive stages of development and rather than assuming that they think in certain ways really using what we understand about the stages that their brain is at and their capacity to take on information when it comes to rolling out so-called nutrition education or nutrition education services. So what you'll hear us talking about today is what Catherine observes as some of the errors or some of the mistakes that we're making in nutrition education and then very cleverly she and Anna have come up with these ideas about what we should be doing instead that more cleverly and strategically and just plain old smartly matches where kids are up to developmentally. Um, she really makes the very um, logical argument that unless we are targeting our um, nutrition approaches or our food-based approaches at levels that kids are cognitively able to 
take in the information and able to um, use that information in a way that helps them rather than harms them, then actually we're going to have a whole bunch of trouble on our hands. And I think most of us would agree that we already do and something's got to change. So be on the lookout for Catherine and Anna's resources, which will be coming out later in 2018. I'm really excited about it. And I hope you are too, because there'll be a lot there for dietitians to learn. A lot of things that we can really take on in our own practices as well, or when we're asked, for new nutrition education advice, whether that's in preschools or kinders or childcare centres or primary schools, probably right the way up through teen years as well. So you can find Catherine at kznutrition.com and she is on various platforms also across um, Instagram and Facebook and you'll hear her talking about those uh, about those ways that you can contact her at the end of our talk together. So if you'd like to join me and about 3,500 other uh, dietitian and nutrition professionals and other health at every size folk who are interested in what we do on The Mindful Dietitian, then please join us in our Facebook group, which is just called The Mindful Dietitian, or otherwise you can look up events, resources, and other things you might be interested in if you are a nutrition professional at themindfuldietitian.com.au. So again, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Catherine Zavodny. Hey, Catherine, it's so wonderful to have you here today on The Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. So you and I met last year at the Body Image Workshop in New York City, and I think it would be fair to say that we hit it off pretty much straight away. That was my impression. Yeah. I, we've got, I like you a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know when you just meet these certain people in your life and you think, I just really like you. You are an awesome human being. Oh, that's so kind of you. Yes, I felt the same way. So it's, it's wonderful to connect and we've been, um, I know I've been slightly on your heels to, <laughs> to come and chat with me for several reasons, which will become apparent. But first of all, I guess I'd really like to ask, if you don't mind, telling us a little bit about you and um, your career trajectory. Sure. Yeah. So I am a dietitian like you. Uh, I've been a dietitian for about 10 years now. Um, when I graduated from college, university, I, um, I had an English degree and I didn't really have a plan for that at all. And my, uh, my plan that I made kind of over the next several years was to go back to medical school uh, as a non-traditional student. Um, and I actually applied and, and got in and started medical school. And uh, had some other things going on uh, in my life and kind of made the discovery fairly early on as a medical student that that was not the trajectory uh, for my career that I wanted to continue. Um, so I, I knew that I was interested in the helping professions and, and specifically uh, health behaviors and how eating and nutrition and, and those health behaviors kind of impact our bodies and our health. Uh, and so I went back to uh, get my master's in public health nutrition uh, in North Carolina at the University of North Carolina. Um, and over those couple of years, I, I started, I was studying nutrition, I was studying public health, which in the nutrition realm of public health, there's a lot of hand wringing and 
what are we going to do about all the fat people and what are, how are we going to teach people all the things that we know about uh, how you maintain a certain body size. And like, there was a lot just going on that I didn't feel comfortable with, but I wasn't really in a place to be able to articulate mm -hmm. what my problem was with that and, and what I would certainly not what I would propose instead. But there was just, I was just hearing a lot of things that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and as my final semester or my final year in graduate school, I, uh, was in an internship, well, it was a part-time job that, that turned into an internship, uh, at a student health clinic at a major university, local to me at the time. Uh, and the problem of eating disorders was a major, major uh, issue um, in that setting. And so as part of my public health degree, I had to do a community assessment looking at a particular public health concern. And so I did my community assessment on this college campus with my, uh, my public health concern being eating disorders, with much to the chagrin of many of my advisors in the, uh, in the public health school. So uh, that uh, led to my first job out of graduate school uh, in a private practice doing outpatient nutrition counseling that just wanted to somebody to see their eating disorders patients just to kind of open up the market when the practice as a whole was not particularly uh, eating disorder friendly. Um, so I was just excited to get the experience uh, because, you know, going into the field of eating disorders, it's hard to get experience without a job and it's hard to get a job without experience. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So I was just glad that somebody was willing to give me a chance, even though um, it, it started to feel a little funny um, pretty early on um, that I was clearly practicing from this uh, paradigm that was just not compatible with um, the way the other providers were uh, were practicing in, in the in that practice setting, you know, there's like sugar busters and all these diet books on the bookshelves and like Splenda coupons on the wall, and I'm you know trying to counsel my eating disorders patients as well as you know any overflow of clients who were coming in for other reasons. And so I just started to get really uncomfortable with this um, role that I was in where the expectation was to do the eating disorders work with the eating disorders clients and then with the other clients do this whole other thing with like a completely different approach. So it sounds like you were being asked to step in and help people and help your eating disorders clients to really interrupt their disordered eating you know, attitudes and behaviors. And then you were basically being asked to help other people to enact those exact same behaviors in some way. Precisely. Well, and, and the other thing that I started to notice was that the people who were coming in, who were not kind of my quote designated eating disorder clients were exhibiting a lot of the same behaviors mm -hmm. that my eating disorder clients were, were exhibiting and, and engaging in some, you know, pretty disordered uh, stuff um, and really having their, their lives um, really negatively impacted by these behaviors in the same sort of way that my, my official eating disorder clients uh, were, were doing. And it just started to feel really funny. Like I, I found myself saying things to those clients and then like, 
just kind of chuckling to myself, like if my boss could hear me right now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know what I'm, what I'm saying to these clients, like I might get fired. But, um, but anyway, so I, uh, through a series of um, very fortunate uh, for me events, I uh, ended up plugging into a different practice in that community that practices an explicitly non-diet, exclusively non-diet, um, intuitive eating, health at every size approach. And as a contractor with that practice, um, I was able to participate in weekly supervision and doing that work. And it was kind of this wonderful realization that there is an alternative to that kind of uh, mainstream way of, of practicing um, nutrition counseling that really does address those things that I was concerned about in that previous setting, you know, practicing in that um, conventional uh, way that, you know, we learned in school and that a lot of uh, folks are still practicing. And it was, oh, it was just so wonderful to, I mean, I just kind of felt like I'd found my home and my niche in, in our field. Uh, and I've been uh, practicing that way as a private practice um, outpatient uh, nutrition therapist ever since. Yeah. Isn't that so interesting how there are so many of us that have very, a very similar experience where we, when we discover or when we uh, stumble across often, um, you know, more of a health at every size framework, it's like, oh, I can now relax. I feel oh, yes. a lot less stressed, a lot less tense. You feel like you're not pushing shit uphill all the time. You know, you're right. like, okay. So I'm curious to understand a little bit about how you felt like that was more aligned with your values, for example. Well, I mean, I, I think in, in that previous practice setting, I, I started to just, I, it was like I was torn between, like I would sometimes say the things that I was kind of expected to say with the not eating disorder clients. Like I felt with my eating disorder clients, I felt like, okay, let's, I, I know what I'm doing here. I know what the goal is. Not that I had super great skills, you know, right, right there out of the gate, but I felt good about what our goals were to get to a place where we can feel some freedom and, and some flexibility with food and, and trust ourselves to, to eat and feed ourselves well in a way that's compatible with, um, kind of a whole person, uh, not, not even health pursuit, but just, you know, the way that you want to live in your body and in the world. So I, I felt really secure in kind of the goal, the overall um, objective with those folks. But then when these other people would come in and they needed to lower their cholesterol or they wanted to lose weight or whatever it was, I would kind of go back and forth between saying the things that were compatible with what really felt comfortable to me, like similar goals to what I had with my eating disorder clients. And, and sometimes I would, I would just try out those things that I was supposed to say, quote, <laughs> that make me cringe now, you know, the things that we get taught in, in uh, our MNT classes and, and nutrition counseling classes about, you know, well, this is what you need to do if you want to lose weight or whatever. And I, I remember just feeling in, in my, in my heart and in my head, even just saying those things saying, I just don't believe this. I just don't believe that what I'm saying is true. And I really hate this feeling of sitting here as if I'm this expert in this thing. It felt so disrespectful. I mean, I think that's kind of, that was kind of the, the heart of it. Like I, I was 
positioning myself as this expert in something that really no one's an expert in because it's a, t- a totally flawed paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I started getting more and more away from that. And then I think that's where joining this other, other practice that I found, um, it really validated all that discomfort, uh, that I was feeling with, with that practice. And it, it gave, um, a foundation and, and a kind of rationale for like, yeah, it, it's uncomfortable because it's wrong and it's harmful and it's not helping people. And it's, you know, exacerbating these problems that they're, that they're coming in and, and, and they're telling me, my clients are telling me why it's wrong. And I can now with this new, with this approach that I, you know, discovered or, you know, found for myself, it's been around, you know, much longer than I've been practicing. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm able to actually validate their experience mm-hmm. instead of saying, well, it's not working for you because you didn't do this. Or if you would just follow my advice, then this would happen, which never felt right for me. But it was just what, you know, what we're supposed to say and what we're supposed to believe. But I think I just kind of over time uh, uncovered for myself that, you know, I really don't believe that. And I really don't think that's correct and helpful and you know, it was a matter of um, realizing that there's an alternative and that I can actually practice and provide a service for people that uh, really does um, validate that experience that they're having, that they've been trying all these things and they try to do the things that people tell them to do and it doesn't work and this is why it isn't working and that uh, I'm able to say, yeah, you're exactly right. It doesn't work. And I can help you understand why you've had that experience. And it's not because you're wrong. And it's not because you're, uh, don't have enough willpower. You're not following, you know, you haven't eliminated the right foods or whatever. Like I can actually validate that experience and give them an alternative to partner with their bodies instead of constantly trying to battle their bodies. Oh, that was so beautifully said, you know, being able to form a partnership with that um, intuitive, wise part of us that is able to meet our own needs. And yeah, there are some times when we um, need some extra support with that in the, you know, in the form of whether that's um, personal support or, um, you know, even education, you know, we, we might not really understand how our brains are wired or how, um, you know, how our hormones work or things like that. So there's, there is a a place for education, um, which I I think one of those things that dietitians sometimes think, well, okay, so hang on a second. (coughs) Am I never supposed to, um, you know, uh, uh, is is there no place for education? Is there no place for any of that stuff? But what I've learned over time is that it's the the skill and I'm still learning for sure. Mm -hmm. The skill is being able to do the how, what and when and being able to very skillfully understand how to invite people to tune in to what they already know first, first and foremost, and then ask permission <laughs> um, permission to fill fill in the gaps for, for right. want of a better term and then there's opportunity for a beautiful conversation um, where still we don't have to sit in an expert seat but that we might have an understanding of things in a different way um, that helps our client understand themselves in maybe a slightly different way yes absolutely 
The other thing that really struck me from what you were speaking about, which really resonated with me in my experience, is that um, I find it fascinating and, and interesting to notice that a lot of folks that come to non-diet approach and health at every size come to it from an eating disorders background or who have had maybe a little to a bit more exposure to folks that have more significantly struggled in their relationship with food eating mm -hmm. and their body and I find that interesting and in some ways I wonder whether you know kind of base level eating disorders training could be strengthened for no other reason than to understand maybe the human experience because like you said it was really interesting that you were seeing a lot of the same behaviors that might not be diagnosed as a clinical eating disorder but you were seeing a lot of the same thinking patterns attitudes and some behaviors in clients that were not seeing you for an eating disorder oh my gosh that is one of my soapboxes oh love it absolutely agree yeah it, it's always struck me that that it's not more widely acknowledged that this problem of disordered eating doesn't just apply to this kind of small cohort of, you know, minority of the population uh, that has a diagnosis. I mean, it's a much, much bigger problem than that. And it really impacts people far beyond this kind of small clinical population that we talk about that, uh, that has a diagnosable eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, I was I was speaking with some students only a couple of week, weeks ago, and these are students who will be um, graduating in the next six months or so, and um, I had two hours um, of the uh, eating disorders lecture, so to speak, and I was thinking, oh, shit, <laughs> how am I going <laughs> to do this in two hours? So I did cover <coughs> diagnostic criteria and things like that, just because I think that's an important an important part of it, but only use that as a very minor, uh, minor section of the two hours and then spent the rest of the time really talking about screening and talking about assessment because I, th I feel, I feel really strongly and I'm really interested in your thoughts on this, Catherine, is that if we're able to do a really good screening and assessment, then we're able to understand a lot more thoroughly and on a more, lot more deep level people's actual experiences around food. And I'm wondering, and this is just a wondering, whether we actually might pick up a few more either clinical eating disorders or more significant disordered eating presentations at an earlier stage because as we know a lot of people who have food eating body concerns they do present to a dietitian because they think that their body is the problem or their eating habits are a problem so i don't know i'm curious to know what you think about you know stepping up the screening and assessment process yeah i mean i think that's really important uh especially i mean you mentioned diagnostic criteria i mean obviously we have to have diagnostic criteria. Like there's, there's not really a way to uh, a way around that. But I think we can get too caught up in uh, in kind of this checklist of things that you know you have to be able to check so many of these boxes in order to be identified as a person who has a problem. Um, I think. Uh, that is extremely short-sighted. And as you and I know with the folks that we see um, in our offices every week, 
um, many, many people, uh, many of the people who, who present with really problematic uh, eating behaviors are, don't, don't meet the criteria. And we have to be really nuanced in the way that we look at these behaviors and kind of take a step back and, and maybe put the diagnostic criteria away as clinicians, you know, when we're, when we're talking to a real life human in front of us, you can, you ask the question to ask is not how many of these boxes does, can I check for this person? It's just in how much distress is this person in and, and to what degree are these behaviors really impacting this person's health and quality of life? And it's really quite variable um, whether or not those those individual unique presentations are are going to uh, to meet those criteria, these arbitrary criteria that are you know exist in the DSM five, which are really different from the criteria that were in the DSM four. We're figuring this out as we go. Yeah, that's right. And I think if we get too caught up in this person has an eating disorder, this person doesn't have an eating disorder. Um, we can really miss a lot of people. So yeah, I think we really need to kind of broaden our, um, our perspectives on kind of how we assess for disordered eating behavior. Very much agree with you. Yeah. I loved those two points. I just, um, if it's okay with you, I just want to draw out two main points you made there, because I think if we're, if those, if there are two questions that we could ask or two foundational focus points, I guess, the two that you mentioned were around distress and impact. And I, brilliant. I love that. And if it's okay, I'm, I'm going to take this forward into my own practice because I think sometimes it's, it's really helpful to just have a couple of points that you just really remember to drill down on. Mm. And we can develop our own questions that really suit our own counseling style, mm-hmm. but remembering, uh, you know, uh, but remembering to ask about, you know, the, the degree of distress or the degree of discomfort or the degree of um, life interruption. Um, mm-hmm. you know, how much time are you, how much time do you spend thinking about food and eating your, your meal choices, um, your body, your appearance each day, things like that. Um, that's a big question. I wouldn't recommend that as <laughs> a big question, but you yeah, know, yeah. you got to get the drift and then impact the second, the second most important thing. Um, so brilliant distress and impact are two wonderful things that you can really help um, help understand your client's experience and whether or not they meet a certain diagnostic criteria is often a bit beside the point really because unless that opens doors for them in terms of um, treatment options or whether it's um, medication or something like that which frankly really that I, I find that really frustrating that, that some people have to meet certain criteria to be eligible for certain um, things right as the distress and impact can be cannot match a, a, um, a certain diagnosis right well because I mean most people are in pretty significant trouble before they get to the point where they meet that criteria right right hundred percent hundred percent. And additionally, when we put um, 
cultural based and individual based weight stigma on top of that, we're missing a whole bunch of people, um, most notably those who are living in a larger body. Um, the distress and impact of diet culture is is huge and often these are the folk who will be coming to us feeling distressed um, and have a significant impact um, on their day-to-day -day lives and they're and they're often coming to us wanting to change their body because they have been led to believe that that's the problem right oh, poor. <laughs> We're in a we're in the mode, we're in the zone, Catherine. Yeah, right. <laughs> so now um if it's okay with you, I'd like to just change tack slightly. Um now you and I as I mentioned, did first meet in uh, in New York at the body image workshop, but then uh we we both attended BETA, which is the Binge Eating Disorder Association and their um, annual conference. And you and our colleague Anna Lutz mm -hmm. uh, spoke beautifully in one of the workshops about um, essentially about nutrition education and cognitive development. And I have shouted this workshop from the roofs, rooftops <laughs> because there were a number of outstanding <laughs> workshops and presentations at that conference, as you know. Um, mm -hmm. But yours really stood out to me because I just found it so practical and that it made so much sense on a very visceral level um, to not only myself, but then other dietitians who might be invited to speak in schools, who might be invited um, on a consultancy basis to work with schools or parents um, or individuals. And I'm wondering if you would mind telling us a little bit about that, uh, I guess the, the workshop content and how you and Anna um, developed, developed this beautiful way of integrating how we understand, you know, nutrition education um, and its suitability or um, how we can, how we can really um, develop our, I guess, our, our nutrition education models around cognitive development for kids and teens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, Anna and I have been working together uh, for about 10 years. She was one of the dietitians who was in the second private practice that I joined um, after I got my uh, my RD credential and is one of the one just one of my longtime mentors. And we've been um, kind of crafting ways to work together since I had to move away uh, from from where she's practicing. And uh, one of the things, we've, we've done lots of things over the years, um, speaking on different uh, topics, including just non-diet approaches for dietitians. Um, but one of the things that we have noticed over the years and just been pulling our hair out over the years about uh, are just these messages that we see um, being targeted towards children about nutrition and health and bodies and just how extremely problematic um, we have have seen that to be what's happening. Uh, and then in addition, we, we have school-age kids, both of us ourselves, and we're seeing what they're coming home with and what they're being exposed to at school. And it's just um, been really upsetting for us um, for a lot of years. 
Um, and one of the primary things that we have noticed is not only are these messages infused with um, extremely moralistic black and white ways of looking at food and, and, uh, and eating behavior, um, as well as uh, there it being really infused with a lot of weight stigma type mm -hmm. language. But, but on a more basic level than that, even the messages are completely age inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So that, and we see kids, I mean, part of the problem that we see is that you, you have these well-intentioned messages that are being delivered to kids in their school settings and, and other places too. And they can't understand those things the way that we want them to understand them, the way that we as the well-intentioned adults who are, who are sending these messages, we can understand those things with some nuance and with some abstract thinking. But kids, young kids are not abstract thinkers. They're not cognitively capable of thinking in abstract terms. So what happens is you take the nutrition as an abstract concept. You can't see it. You can't see the nutrients and the, the calories and the protein. And these are all uh, abstract concepts because we can't look at them. We can't hold them in our hands and explain to a child that this is what this is. It's an abstract concept. You take an abstract concept and you make it concrete. Mm -hmm. And then you send this message, this, con this concrete message to concrete thinkers and they understand it in a concrete way which is inevitably completely twisted around, not, at, not through any fault of the child, they're just thinking the way that they're cognitively capable of thinking. Um, and then those things are at best just kind of misunderstood and dismissed. And at worst, um, really uh, applied by children in these really harmful, dangerous ways. Plant, you know, seeds are planted for thinking about foods as either bad or good or healthy or unhealthy. And even, you know, you've got the euphemisms that people use, red light, green light foods, or sometimes all, always or, you know, rarely foods. You know, kids, they pick up on that, you know, this is a euphemism and you're just telling me that this is bad and this is good. Yes, they're not silly. <laughs> My gosh. Right. So, um, so what Anna and I started, she actually had the idea to, to submit this as, um, as a proposal to, for the BETA conference, that this is something, you know, a huge area for education that we can be um, focusing on that looks at the actual, so we looked at the actual um, theory of cognitive development that identifies kind of these cognitive developmental stages that, you know, from kids from preschool age on up through, you know, their teenage years and how their ability to cognitively process information develops over time based on what our brains are, are capable of, of doing. And it occurred to us that every single thing that is taught in a classroom, every single educational topic that is that is applied in in the classroom takes that cognitive development into account. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Except for nutrition. Mm. And that we're just we're so compelled. There's just like this moral panic 
in our culture about teaching how to be healthy and how to eat healthy and what foods are healthy and, and all, all of this, which that is a whole other, you know, issue that yeah, sure. yeah. You know, deserves a conversation. But um, there, there's this, um, it's like this moral imperative that we need to be teaching children how to eat healthy. Because I think that's also based on the assumption that if they know or slash we know, because this kind of thinking is also extended to parents, if parents know, um, then they will make quote unquote good choices or quote unquote healthy choices or whatever. So there's this kind of straight line drawn between if we know better, we'll do better. And with kids particularly, um, my understanding is that that's not the case and, and certainly in adults well me I'll take me for an example <laughs> that's not the case right, <laughs> I, right. know I, should, I know I should be flossing every day do I do it no <laughs> right I, exactly it, it's not an information deficit no and even if it was an information deficit I mean like you said we, we see in adults that that information deficit is is not the issue there's a lot more complicated physiology and psychology and associate like all kinds of input that are impacting these decisions that we make um, but even if it were just a, a strict matter of of an informational a need for information kids are not able to to integrate that information appropriately so, you know, like I said, we, they take these, these concepts that are abstract by definition. I mean, a nutrition concept by definition is abstract, but then beyond that, they're trying to teach kids like, you know, just, you, you have to only eat, you can't eat too much sugar and you don't want to eat too much of that. And you want to only eat, you don't want to limit this and this is healthy. And these are all just really abstract concepts, mm. but these concrete thinkers are, are, are receiving this information integrating it in in very concrete ways which is to say vegetables are vegetables are good cake is bad yeah but my birthday was last week and i had cake at my birthday and my mom gave it to me why is she giving me food that's bad why you know if it's going to hurt me or make me sick like and we as adults we understand that you know we can consider the choices that we make around food with you know the what some gentle knowledge of nutrition can be a factor and that's, that's all well and good. And we can make our own grown up decisions about how we want to um, feed ourselves based on our values, what we've decided our values are, whatever those are. Um, but kids aren't able to, to process it in that way. It's either good or bad. And, you know, the, the flip side of that is, you know, a child who, here's this message that, okay, fruits and vegetables are good. So I'm only going to eat fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And the more of this, the more of this that I eat and the less of this other thing that I eat, the better off I'll be because good is good and bad is bad. And you know, that's a, an extreme uh, example, but I mean, that's, we see that stuff and they're starting to document that in the literature that, um, that we can, we can have really severe, life-threatening disordered eating uh, be triggered by these very well-intended messages about, quote, healthy eating. Yeah, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this point, uh, and I'm very happy to be corrected, but there is um, a certain age, and of course this would vary depending on the um, 
you know, the cognitive developmental stage of each child and, and the emotional stage and um, temperament, et cetera, et cetera. But um, my understanding, and I certainly see this in teens and adults, is this internalization of those messages, of those good, bad messages as then being related to myself. So I eat quote unquote good foods and that makes me a good person. Um, and if I eat foods that I have been told or I have been led to believe are bad, then that makes me a bad person. So that's possibly where that dangerous edge lies, is that internalization of those messages as extended to my feelings towards myself. Absolutely. Well, and it's also, I mean, it doesn't take into account, I mean, this particular resource for developmentally appropriate practice that is, is theoretically meant to be applied to any, any education that we offer to children is not just what we know about um, the child's level of cognitive ability based on age, but also what we know about each child individually. Yeah. Yep. So true. And so, you know, what you're missing when, when you don't uh, consider that are, you know, the particular challenges that any individual child might be bringing. I mean, maybe you've got um, an extreme selective eater, or maybe you've got someone who's on the autism spectrum who is really struggling to uh, establish just kind of a consistent, adequate um, nutrition intake, whether it's because of anxiety or texture concerns or, you know, just sensitivities like that. And then you go in, in, in the classroom, you get this uh, message that processed foods are bad for you or, or whatever it is. And maybe that kid had a real breakthrough that week, you know, with Cheerios goldfish or something. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, you're really like, it's, it's a well-intentioned message or maybe there are food insecurity issues. And, and I was reading a, an article this week about how, you know, people are, are so critical of um, lower income populations uh, buying junk food, what people would call junk food. That's not a term that I use, but that's, you know, the kind of the narrative. And the point was made that for folks who can't afford, that's the indulgence that they can afford. Is to go and enjoy these foods, and that might be the one little bright spot in a kid's day, mm -hmm. when you know every bit of the lifestyle is really um, impacted by uh, by their low income status and and not really having access to you know some of these other uh, things that that folks are going to enjoy you know as children. Um, so there are just all these factors that that are not being taken into account. When you have this, and that's where the kind of uh, values neutral or moral neutrality um, to what we're talking about in terms of nutrition education, um, it, it's a really important feature of kind of what we're proposing is that you really steer clear of any of these values messages mm -hmm. because, you know, families have to figure out what their, what their values are based on culture and based, based on eating temperaments and if there are any sensitivities or, you know, our socioeconomic status or environment. And there are just all these things that are, that need to be left up to families to, to decide for themselves. Yeah. There's yeah. no possible way a values-based nutrition message delivered in a classroom can be appropriately applied to every child in that classroom. Mm. 
yeah, that's, that's a really important point really important point is you know individual uh, differences within a classroom across a year level and then between different year levels as well. Um, Catherine I'm, I'm curious to understand a little bit um, more if you don't mind giving us some examples of maybe some specific age groups what you feel like is um, not hitting the mark at the moment and then what you and Anna would propose instead. Yeah, so um, so starting with, uh, let's just say preschool to begin, um, one of the things that we see a lot in preschool classrooms, we're talking about three and four-year-olds, is this uh, assignment to classify foods as either healthy or not healthy. Mm -hmm. And again, that... Um, that those euphemisms like you don't really see you don't really see good or bad and you don't even really necessarily so often see um healthy or not healthy but you do see the red light and green light foods and the you know often and rarely foods and the most recent one that i saw that just makes me want to tear my hair out is whoa foods and go foods <laughs> Oh, whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa! as in you're pulling your horse up, that type thing. Yeah, like, whoa, stop. This is a food that is, oh. not, is not good for you. That's just strange. <laughs> yeah, it really, I, I saw this and, and actually the, the example that I saw was um, right before Thanksgiving Ugh, yeah. here in, in, in the U.S. Uh, in, back in November, it was the week before Thanksgiving. And pumpkin pie is one of our traditional Thanksgiving foods, and pumpkin pie was on the whoa list. What? Yeah, and I'm like, no. oh, come on, like, we're all going to eat pumpkin pie next week. Like, why, why do we have to? And then, of course, on, on the go list is, you know, fruits, pretty much fruits and vegetables. That's pretty much all oh. that's there. Get and yeah, and so I'm just which right then and right there, right out of the gate, demonstrates why you can't talk about nutrition in these concrete terms. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, if 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 a food is either a woe food or a go food, then you you want to eat as many of the go foods as you can and as few of the woe foods as you can. But if you're only eating the foods that are on this go list you're going to have a big problem. Like you're going to need to be hospitalized. Like, so that to me demonstrates not just that it's age inappropriate, but that it's just a completely flawed way of, of approaching this because again, abstract concept put in concrete terms, um, you know, because you can't tell a three-year-old, well, it's all about really just kind of balancing a variety of different foods and eating lots <laughs> of different foods that we like. And, you know, our bodies really like that variety. And so it's important to make lots of different choice. Like you can't, you can't explain that to a three-year-old, even though that's the way we would kind of ideally ultimately hope for them to understand eating in the long run, like on into their adult lives. So, um, so after how so after how many seconds or milliseconds do you think a three year old would totally tune out? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, honestly, that's my hope. I hope that they tune yeah. out. I yeah, hope yeah. that they don't come home and get, feel really confused about why mommy is serving me a whoa food. Yeah. Right? It, should, it should be a whoa food, not that was whoa. awesome. That was yeah. Awesome. Well, no. so and that that kind of brings me to what to what we would propose as an alternative. Um, and for the preschool age, it's really very much just about exposure. Yeah. 
Um, so having, you know, food, play food models in the classroom and letting them play kitchen and stir the soup and, and that sort of thing. So encouraging just um, experiential play and letting them make their own discoveries about, you know, what they observe um, on their own about these, you know, foods that they're playing with. Asking questions, you know, inviting some, some conversation and just seeing what they observe. Um, very basic food preparation experiences with, with zero pressure kind of tasting opportunities. So allowing them to uh, participate in, in actually preparing or even cooking very simple um, foods and recipes and then allowing them to taste if they are interested. Again, no pressure because you don't know what kinds of challenges or temperaments or um, preferences kids are coming with and they're just trying to kind of find their way. And so I think it's really, really important to make it a completely zero pressure experience. If they want to taste it, they can. If they don't want to, no problem. Maybe next time. Um, and then the other thing that we really like for this, for these young ages is um, talking about cultural food differences, which again, for it might be a little much for a three-year-old, but maybe like in a pre-K or kindergarten, um, looking at different food cultures and how different people in different parts of the world or even, you know, different houses on the same block or different children right there in the classroom might have really different um, customs and traditions around eating and, and, you know, maybe this family is a vegetarian and the, this other family, uh, you know, has somebody who's allergic to dairy and, you know, this, I mean, you talk about different cultures and, and different um, eating customs and different cultures and the value that I see there is because, so a major pitfall of kind of the current way that we talk about nutrition and eating in classrooms is that it's very suggestive that there's one right way to eat well mm. and let me guess a white person's way <laughs> well yeah i mean or, or or just whatever whoever happens to be standing in front of the class you know whether it's someone who has an eating disorder or someone who has been struggling to lose weight her whole life and and really has a lot of fat phobia or you know somebody who is orthorexic and might have really negative attitudes about foods that that person perceives to be unhealthy like that's the that's the the lens that through which these messages are delivered mm -hmm. and you know there's the bottom line is that this message comes through that there's one right way to do this and your health is on the line or your life is on the line or whatever really terrible thing is going to happen if you don't get it right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so where this kind of cultural um, awareness piece comes in is that the underlying message there is that people's eating patterns are wildly different and we and and that's wonderful and and something to be celebrated not something to be uh, suspicious of or, or critical of like I mean I always talk about like the Inuit Eskimos that like some like the vast majority of their diet is fatty fish yeah and you're not like you know eating a big kale salad every day and like they're they're doing all right like that's our bodies are adaptive and our bodies can really thrive um with lots of different eating patterns and i think that that's something that is sorely missing from the way that we talk about food and health um in these settings uh is that you know what 
eating is a, a hugely personal matter and it's up to each individual person and each individual family or, or parents really. I mean, when we're talking about young kids, it's really up to the parents to decide like, what are their food values? How do they eat? How does it, how, what kind of eating pattern and framework works for them and how do they want that to look within their families? And so, you know, another feature of, of this kind of curriculum that we're proposing is that it must absolutely be supportive of individual families having the prerogative to determine what their food values are, how they're going to feed and uh, really reinforcing and supporting that. I think if it's similar to like sex education. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you're not going to teach classrooms full of small kids, you know, that it's better to wait until you're married to have sex or that, you know, it's okay to have sex as long as you're in love with the person, you know, whatever those values, those very highly personal values statements that we have around sexual behavior, like we're, we're, we're all pretty, I mean, people go astray, you know, I'm sure that has, has happened, but generally speaking, like we're all pretty okay with this idea that, you know, parents decide what they want to teach their kids in terms of, you know, how our, our sexuality as, as human beings. So we're going to leave, we're going to teach facts and we're going to leave the value statements out of it when it comes to education and religion is another example. Like we can teach about world religions, but we're not going to tell you the student, the child, like this is the right one. This is the way that, you know, this is the best way to practice your religious faith or, or whatever. Um, but we get really confused about that when it comes to nutrition. Yeah, that's that's actually a really fantastic point. What what do you think it is about nutrition that gets people all um, riled up, or, or, or that feels like it's um, like it needs such emphasis? Um, well, I think it's. I really do think it's a pretty sad commentary on where our culture is with all of that right now. Um, our, our culture is very weight biased and fat phobic. And I think a lot of this, um, kind of fretting that we do about health is, is really more about body size mm -hmm. and whether or not that's stated explicitly in these classrooms varies a lot. I'd love to say that, you know, that part is not explicitly brought in in the classroom ever, but it for sure is. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but I think that we also consider health to be um this kind of moral imperative like in our, in our culture like there's it's it's very much a moral matter whether or not you are pursuing health quote in a way that i or our culture or whatever has decided is is acceptable yeah um and it's you know we have this particular idea of, of health that varies some from person to person, but uh, there's this, um, yeah, I mean, this kind of expectation and this, I mean, healthism, I think is, is a, a real thing. And, you know, unfortunately, teachers are placed in the position, whether, whether, you know, it varies how much teachers feel compelled to deliver these messages in schools. But I think to some degree, there are just as many parents, probably way more parents that expect that to be taught, because it's just such 
a crisis that we're in that we perceive ourselves to be in that this moral crisis that we need to be pursuing health and it's all about health. Um, and in the meantime, it feels like we're moving away from holistic health in so many ways. That's how I see it. I, I, I wish, uh, that, that perception of things was, was more common, but it's as if I, I completely agree with you. But then it's like the people on the other side who are who are perceiving that like we're not teaching enough, we're not doing enough, we're not trying hard enough, and look, people are getting less healthy. And and the way that you and I see it, we're like, yeah, they're getting less healthy because the way that we talk about this is not healthy. Yeah. <laughs> but then it's like there's this there's this assumption that we just have to keep upping the ante to try and, and compel people more and more to actually pursue health because people just aren't getting it. And, and that's, I think the perception that people have. And, and I think that's where you start when you start to see that these messages being delivered to three year olds, it's kind of one of those like upping the ante kind of situations where, um, I mean, it, it's kind of like, dieting behavior predicting weight gain like we know that from our clients we know that from the literature but the fat phobic you know people in charge out there are saying oh no people are getting fatter we need to diet more we need to try harder we need to restrict more we need to shame people more and it's all these things that are are potentially contributing to actual weight gain and and those of us who kind of have the blinders off about these things are just shaking our heads because it just gets more and more intense and frenzied and it's accomplishing the exact opposite of what people claim to care about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a difference between um, having best intentions at heart. You know, I don't, I don't know a single colleague of ours that is not genuinely caring about the well-being of their clients or their community that they work with, not at all. But the, and and then there are other individuals, companies, and organisations that absolutely know that the messages are either not helpful or are harmful for at least a certain proportion of the population, and do it anyway. Yeah, you know. So I think there's. I think. You know, with our colleagues, we know that there's compassion there. We know there's care there, but there's a, a misinformation or an ignorance. And by ignorance, I don't mean a willful ignorance. I just mean that they're not, they haven't had the opportunity to be exposed, for example, to the um, the community that we have been or the support or the supervision or the education even um, in terms of, you know, health at every size and, and more intuitive eating approaches. So... We're working on that, aren't we? <laughs> yes, yes, we are. But it, but it's important, I think, to to keep that in mind that we all kind of started from a place where we didn't really have a, a full understanding of this, and right. there are people who are still kind of in that place. And and I think it's important to to keep that compassion in order to preserve um, a civil dialogue about these things. That's because exactly if we can't right. have a civil dialogue, then we will get nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. 100% agree, 100%. So um, with the work that yourself and Anna are doing, my understanding is that this is going to be developed into a resource and some education for health professionals or for teachers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, well, so we um, just, we so enjoyed putting this curriculum together and, and we, or this presentation, the beta presentation, and, and we've gotten just a lot of people who are really enthusiastic and interested about it, um, and it just appears that there's a real need. Um, well, we were convinced to begin with that there was a need, but it sounds like uh, there are a lot of people who agree. Uh, so, and just, um, you know, for our, our own children, as well as just kind of what we see um, across our communities. Uh, so our hope is to actually um, develop a, a curriculum text uh, that can be made available to educators um, that goes into a whole discussion of kind of what we've been talking about, why this is necessary, what we see are the issues with what uh, is happening currently, um, as well as a more in-depth detailed discussion of each kind of cognitive developmental stage and the cognitive features of that stage and what kids are able to process and what they're not able to process at each certain age. Um, and then to actually include some specific lessons for each of those, um, each of those age groups. So we're hoping to kind of uh, get something together uh, by the end of this year to, to be made available to educators. Oh, that is so wonderful and so needed as well because I know you Anna, you and Anna well enough to know that you're very thoughtful and considerate and will have really done a lot of the background work to have pulled this all together in a way that really makes sense to educators and I'm sure that there are lots of aspects of this that would be incredibly helpful for us as dietitians as well. I hope so. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, my gosh, I'm so excited for you. I cannot wait. I cannot wait oh, to, to read it and to, you know, to hopefully be able to use it, you know, pass it on and, and help other folks to, um, to be able to, to really understand how we can best support our kids to grow up feeling good about their bodies and feeling good about, about food um, and, and feeling good about other people's bodies and other people's foods, <laughs> which yep. is kind of just as important really. Um, mm -hmm. Um, now, where can folks find you, Catherine? Yeah, so I am, uh, my website is KZ Nutrition for Catherine Zavodny, kznutrition.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, uh, which I believe my Facebook handle is Catherine Zavodny RDN. So facebook.com slash Catherine Zavodny RDN. And then I'm on Twitter and Instagram at KatZavRD, K-A-T-Z-A-V-R-D uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, that's perfect. And we were just talking about, um, you know, developing a social media online presence and <laughs> yeah. watch this space. <laughs> right. No, that'll be wonderful. But if anybody wants to track the work that you and Anna are doing, then that might be a good way that um, that folks can kind of keep in touch. So, and sure. Really and if anybody wants to to reach out directly, um, I'd love to. I've I've been having lots of really interesting conversations with colleagues about this work, um, and I'm happy to hear from anybody. I'm at Catherine K A T H E R I N E at kznutrition.com. Would love to hear from anybody who has questions or just wants to discuss anything further. Oh, that's so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me today. As always, it is in just a privilege and a pleasure to speak with you. So I hope you oh. have a wonderful day and no doubt we will cross paths very soon.
Yes. Thank you so much, Fiona. This is so fun. See you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.